I think people think investing should be like, I should be like picking stocks and jumping in on the market and moving into gold and buying options and like making all these moves. And like, none of that's true. You know, all like the, the older and longer, the older I get, the more experience I get, the wiser hopefully I get. Um, and the more I see about investing, the more I'm convinced that the trickier you try to be, the, the less money you end up with. And the simpler you make it, the more money you end up with. Hi, everyone. You're listening to the Limitless Grid Podcast. Today's guest is a personal finance expert, Jeremy Snyder. Jeremy's financial journey is truly remarkable. Despite earning around $30,000 a year for a decade and living in California, he managed to invest wisely and had a six-figure investment portfolio in that decade. His entrepreneurial spirit shone through when he founded Rentlix in 2004, eventually selling it in 2015, which brought him into the Millionaire's Club. But his story doesn't end there. Now through Personal Finance Club, Jeremy passionately educates others on how to make sound financial decisions and invest confidently. Our talk with him is filled with practical insights and wisdom, and we hope that you find it valuable. So let's get started. Hey, Jeremy, thank you for joining us at the Limitless Grid podcast. Hey, thank you for having me. Um, So I wanted to start by asking that you started the company Rentlex while you were in college. How did you come up with the idea? Um, it wasn't actually called Rentlex at first. I just didn't want a real job. And so I started a company and I was just doing um, basically renting out my time, building websites and stuff for people who needed help with that. And then over the next couple of years, I basically found a niche making websites for landlords in my town and then um, found like a consistent need that they all had and then developed that into a product and then renamed the company to Rentlinks. And um, yeah, that's what it, it was more of a iteration over time than a visionary moment at the beginning. So when you graduated, you also had a job offer from Microsoft, but you decided to turn it down. That's true. Yeah, I was, I actually was an intern at Microsoft for two summers as a software development engineer, actually was at Bill Gates's house twice, strangely enough, uh, for the intern summer barbecue. Um, And they gave me a full time job offer for a lot of money back then. And I just, I don't know, it's a great company. They treated me very well, but I just didn't want to work there full time. I didn't like being like a cog in the machine. I much preferred to, um, be the beneficiary of my own hard work. Uh, you know, I feel like at Microsoft, as great of a company as it is, if you work like 10 times as hard, you make about the same amount of money, or if you just phone it in, you make about the same amount of money. But I wanted like my work to be, or my you know, reward to be reflective of my work. And I didn't like just doing the same thing all day. I feel like at any big company, they kind of hire people into specific positions just to do one specific thing necessarily. Um, but I like doing more things and with, starting your own company, you kind of get to do everything. So it was more fun for me. So we're both software engineers and we know like how lucrative a tech job can be, especially with salary and everything that you get with it. Um, When you decided to not take that job offer from Microsoft, like were you making a lot with your company or like what was your thought process to let go of that job and just like, you know, work on your company? yeah, financially, I wasn't making any money. I was a college kid and I was broke. Um, and and for sure, I was 
I was never richer than in the in, you know the Microsoft internships because I was living on virtually no money, and then they were paying me like you know, as an intern, they were paying me like a pretty you know decent salary as an intern. Every two weeks, I get this paycheck. I was like, wow. Um, and so then when I turned down the job offer, certainly it made no financial sense. I had like a guaranteed big salary and I think there was even like a signing bonus and there was a annual bonus and stock options and like all this stuff, but I just didn't want it to. And so it wasn't about the money for me. It was just about, um, doing what I wanted, which is, you know, obviously a position of privilege. I could even make that choice, but, um, but yeah, then I started my company and the first year of doing that, I think my top line revenue was about $14,000, um, which doesn't count the expenses I had, which was much less, you know, some, some number less than $14,000. So like I maybe took home $10,000 my first year, which wasn't, this was back in 2003. Um, so things were cheaper then, but not that much cheaper. We're not, I'm not talking about like the 1930s or something like that, you know, um, and so I lived on credit cards. And so for the first actually two years or so, just to afford to like buy groceries and stuff, I was paying for them with credit cards. And it was kind of like, it was, it was a little bit reckless at the time, but I was 22 and, you know, it's not that I didn't know better. I definitely had a uh, fallback position of like crawling back to Microsoft and begging for a job. Um, but yeah, over the course, you know, the first year I basically racked up credit card debt of about $10,000 and I would like balance between like these 0% balance transfers. I like always get the credit card offers in the mail and like read them. And I was always looking for like 0% intro APR, 0% balance transfer APR and 0% balance transfer fee. If I get like the magic combination of, they don't charge you to put money on there then I would like move it over and. You know, I, I think over the course of two years, I basically didn't pay much or any interest because I was able to um, get those offers. So yeah, that's what I did for two years. And so it made, made zero financial sense. And it, it was in, in one part a little bit reckless. So, so you were earning $30,000 while you were at your company. And yet you managed to, to save and invest. How'd you go about that? Yeah, you know, the earliest days I wasn't even being, wasn't able to afford to live and I was living on credit cards. And then once basically after doing it for two years, which in hindsight feels very short by the time, two years is a long time just to grind and like not be sure if you're going to be able to like pay yourself. Um, but after two years, we were, we're making enough money where we had $30,000 in the, in the business bank account. And, and I had personally had $12,000 of credit card debt that I was living on. And so I wrote both my mom and I, who we kind of had a deal. We were going to pay ourselves the same and split everything equally other than the, the ownership of the company. I wrote both my mom and I a check for $12,000 each. And I was able to pay off my, you know, took most of the money out of the business bank account, of course, but was able to pay off my um, credit card debt with one check, which was great. And then from that point forward, we were basically making enough where I could pay myself 3000 bucks a month. And it was just... Literally was a number I pulled out of a hat that was like 2000 would be too little 4000 seems like that's too luxurious. Um, and so 3000 bucks a month so is actually $36,000 a year 3000 times 12. And that's the most I ever paid myself until the day we sold the company. Um, and, you know, it, that was like my take home salary because rent links was an LLC. And so there's pass through taxes. And so when, when I sold the company, we were doing about a million dollars a year in revenue. And, and any profits was passed through into my personal taxes or at least 70% of them. Um, and so 
Rentlinks was like covering that was paying its own taxes or whatever. And so 30,000 was basically like my after tax salary. Um, but you know, I was living in San Diego. Um, and I don't, I don't, you know, I think at the time it felt great because I was like, man, I used to make no money and now I make $3,000 a month. This is way better. And I just didn't spend a lot. And I think people, you know, I think people often spend to their level of income. So for me, the answer was I had roommates. My, you know, my rent was about 700 bucks a month in San Diego because I had roommates. And then I drove a 99 Ford Explorer that I paid $3,000 for. I bought in cash. And so my car payment was zero. My rent payment was 700. And then everything else was less than 2,300. And so I basically, on that 2,300, I invested 500 bucks a month into a Roth IRA. And then the rest I just spent on food and stuff and just kind of lived a simple life. That's, that's really impressive. So um, in terms of like healthcare and other insurance, like you probably got from your company and that $3,000 a month you got, you just like spend on like rent, food and everything. And that was like enough. First couple of years, this was like pre-Obamacare when I just didn't have health insurance. And I remember being a little bit nervous about that even at 22. And I was just like, I don't know what I'm doing as an adult. Um, and then eventually I was able to sign up for like the cheapest health insurance is still a giant mess. I didn't know what I was doing then. I still know, I know a little, I know enough now to not feel bad about not knowing what I was doing then. But yeah, I signed up for like a, a health insurance plan for like 50 bucks a month that like, who knows if it would have even like covered anything. Yeah, and then eventually um, the company started paying or started providing health insurance. And I forget what it was, but I think my, my out-of-pocket expense wasn't that much. It might've been 50 or 100 bucks or something. You know, I've always kind of been in the mind that I prefer to keep my premium as low as possible and keep as much money in my own account as possible. And so I signed up for like the high deductible health plan that's hopefully HSA compatible. And um, yeah, keep the premium as low as possible. So you mentioned HSA. For those who don't know HSA, can you, can you explain what HSA is and the benefits of HSA? Sure. It stands for health savings account. It's just like a checking account or a savings account, but it's another type of bank account that you open and you put money into it. But unlike a checking or savings account, it's got some special rules. If you put money into it, the money you put into it doesn't count towards your income tax and your salary. So for example, if you make $50,000 a year and you put $3,000 into a health savings account, the government doesn't tax you on $50,000 of income. It taxes you on 47000 Like that 3000 goes directly in. The second benefit, the tax benefit, is that if you spend money out of your HSA, like you get a debit card just like you would with like a savings or checking account. And if you go to the doctor and you have a health, health expense and you give them your HSA debit card, there's no income tax on that. So the, that, is, that is spent tax-free as well. And then the third benefit is that it can also grow tax-free. And so if you get interest inside of your HSA, then um, that also is tax-free. And these are this is unlike a regular checking or savings account. Normally with a check account, if you get if you earn income and put, you put money in there, you get taxed on it. And then if it grows, you get interest. You actually get to get taxed on that, like maybe unbeknownst to a lot of us because interest has been so small lately. And so this HSA offers this triple tax benefit. It goes in tax-free, it grows tax-free, and it spends tax-free on qualified medical expenses. And so you can use it both as a medical spending account, but you can also use it as an investment account. And so inside of my personal HSA now, I have like about a thousand bucks worth of cash and the rest of it, which I think I've got like 30,000 bucks in there or something, I keep invested in index funds, which grows over time. And then it, and then also at 65, it converts to a regular like retirement account. And so, yeah. 
I also wanted to ask, um, you had mentioned that you spend $500 a month in investment while you're making like three grand a month. Where did you invest that $500? Most generally, the HSA is kind of like a fine-tuning tip, but most generally, investing is all about spending less than you make and then investing the difference in something that grows over time. And so instead of just spending all my money every month, I would take 500 bucks, put it into an investment account. And the type of investment account is I chose called a, a Roth IRA, which again is just like the name of an account, just like checking account, savings account, HSA, health savings account, or Roth IRA. And there's these very complex terms that are very abstract and makes people's brains turn to mush the first time they hear them. But it's not that complicated. It's just a different type of account. I put my 500 bucks into there, and then once that cash is in there, instead of just leaving it as cash, you can actually go to your investment website, investment brokerage website like Vanguard, Fidelity, or Schwab. And then you click like invest and you choose what to invest in. And I chose to invest in, you know, this is a short interview, but it changed a bit over time. But basically now I choose to invest in what's called index funds, which is basically investing in all of the stocks in the stock market. And so instead of you could buy Microsoft stock or Apple stock or Google or Facebook or whatever, but I buy all the stocks in one convenient package called an index fund. And so, yeah, basically for those, I sold my company at 34. So from like, you know, 24 or so when I started having income to 34, that 10 years, I was putting about 500 bucks a month, which is about 6,000 bucks a year times 10 years of 60,000 bucks. I put about 60,000 bucks into there, but then there's also growing during that time and it doubled or so. So there's like 120,000 bucks. And that was essentially about my net worth when I sold my company. It was about 120,000 bucks just from that 500 bucks a month of saving and investing. While growing up, I always thought that investment is for rich people. So how were you introduced to the concept of investing? You know, investing is for everyone. And in fact, if you don't want to be broke your whole life, you should be investing. You can start with like a dollar now. We, you know, living in the United States, is like a golden era of investing because you don't need, there's, you can invest for very little cost, like a fraction of a percent of the money you're putting in and for very little starting amount, like basically all the major brokers let you start for almost no money. Um, so for me personally, my story was I was gratefully introduced to it by my parents who were not rich, but we were middle-class or maybe upper middle-class. And um, when I was basically turning 16, 17, I got my first job. My dad introduced to me this idea of an investment account. He said, hey, instead of just putting your money in a checking account or a savings account and just watching it sit there, you can put some of your money into an investment account. And then instead of spending it every month, that is meant to sit there for a very long time and grow and compound like a snowball that gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And if you just leave it there and it's like very exciting, at least I got very excited as like a 16 year old to look at this compound growth chart where you could see, okay, if I put in every, like every dollar you invest at the age of 20 turns into $88 at the age of 65. It's like crazy, the, the multiplication factor. And if you invest like 500 bucks a month, starting at 25 at 65, that turns into like $3.1 million or something. The, the numbers get, get mind bodily big, even if you're starting with small amounts. And so, yeah, I was introduced to this idea. And so um, I, I was very fortunate and privileged but when I got my first, you know, paycheck, I worked at a summer camp. I made twelve hundred bucks for the summer. My dad basically wrote me a check for twelve hundred bucks and said, "Hey, he's going to match me, give me a hundred percent match, and say, hey, you can take your twelve hundred bucks and spend it.' But what we're going to do with this match is you're going to put this into a Roth IRA and let it grow. 
um, because the rule of the Roth IRA is you, you know, you can't put unlimited money into it. It's not for billionaires to shield themselves from taxes. It's for like normal people who have a few hundred bucks to, to save and let it grow tax free. And so he said, Hey, since you made 1200 bucks, we'll put another 1200 bucks into your Roth IRA, buy some index funds and then let it grow for years. And which is basically what I've done since then. Also, I feel like with index funds, there are so many options. And for someone who's listening, who has no idea, like which index fund to choose or watch broke, what brokerage from firm to choose. Do you have any suggestions? Well, I give that more generic answer to say, Hey, like if you're out there and you're listening, like it's time to like sit down and learn. Um, that said, you know, I can give you some, some answers The you know, the big three brokerages in the U S are Vanguard, Fidelity and Schwab. And you can basically go to those websites, Vanguard.com, Fidelity.com or Schwab.com, um, and click open an account and then follow the instructions and then link your bank account and then put money in. Um, and again, like the very first time you do it, it's going to seem a little bit weird and abstract because you've never done it before. But the first time you open a bank account, it seems a little weird. The first time you open a Venmo account, it seems a little weird. Um, and then, you know, those three are what are considered like full service brokerages because you do have to basically choose what investments you want to make by, you know, you type in the ticker symbol, which is a little one to five character, uh, like nickname for the investment. And you can research those on many websites, including my own personal finance club. It tells you which, which to do. If you want it to be even easier, I think using a robo advisor like betterment or Wealthfront are great options you can go to betterment.com or wealthfront.com and basically with those it's like they make it really simple you just like open an account put in your money and then they just deal with it um, and they charge like a small fee but you know anyone who wants simple like i have a 18 year old nephew and on his birthday we opened up a kind of like my dad i don't have kids yet but my like my dad did for me we opened up a, him a roth ira on his birthday and was like and i said you know, Eli, what do you, uh, do you want, are you like an aficionado? Do you want to spend a lot of time like noodling over which investments to choose and, and fine tuning and being super cautious about every penny? And he's like, no, I do not. I was like, great. <laughs> like now that we know that let's just, we still went to betterment.com and dumped all dumped, you know, his birthday money in there. Um, and, and there it sits to this day. So, um, you know, there's, there's definitely those easy options, like the Betterment and Wealthfront and these like newer sites that are more like Venmo in, in their ease of use. So you, you mentioned Roth IRA. Can you tell a little bit more about Roth IRA and what is the limit to invest and who, who are eligible to invest in Roth IRA? Mm -hmm. Sure. So it is, it is an account. It's like a savings account, checking account, Roth IRA. You just open the account. It is an American account, first of all. So this, this doesn't apply if you're not paying tax in the U S essentially, um, you know, if you don't live in the U S and don't pay U S tax, this has no relevance to you. This is like a way to avoid U S taxes or limit your U S tax. Um, and the way it works is basically you can put money in and then the money as it grows, never gets taxed again. And so, for example, if you, if you invest 500 bucks a month into a regular old brokerage account, that's like a regular old investment account. That's not this tax protected account, like a Roth IRA. If you do 500 bucks a month for 40 years, that's 500 times 12 is 60,000 times 40 is $240,000. So you've saved $240,000, which is a, which is a big amount of money, of course. But if you were investing that and you get a 10% rate of return on average over those 40 years, which is what the stock market has provided on average over the last hundred years or so, then that $240,000 becomes $3.1 million. So of that 3.1 million, about 0.2 million is your principal 
what you put in and a point and about 2.9 million is the growth. And so there's this problem and opportunity that exists with investing where if you turn, you know, 0.2 million into 3.1 million, you have to pay what's called capital gains tax and or income tax on all of the growth. The government says, "Hey, you just turned 0.2 into 2.0 into 3.1. That 2.9, the growth has never been taxed before. Pay us tax, 15 or 20 or 25 percent or whatever it is. And so, you know, after a 20 percent tax bill and 2.9 million dollars, you're going to end up with like 2.4 million dollars or something like that, which ain't bad. Um, you know, I would gladly turn 240 thousand dollars into 2.4 million all day if I could." But if you can turn it instead of 2.4 into 3.1 and save yourself $700,000 on taxes, then you'd want to do that. And so that's what a Roth IRA does. Is any money that goes in there is protected from tax forever. And there are some rules. There's some like details. One of the rules is you can't contribute more than you earn. So for example, if you don't have any earned income, then you can't use a Roth IRA, which is why my dad cleverly opened one for me at, at 18 or whatever and put all of my income in there, 1200 bucks. You also, this year, can't contribute more than $6,500 per year. And so again, it's not for billionaires to put like millions of dollars a year in. It's for regular people to put a few hundred bucks a month into. And also, you can't take the growth out tax and penalty free until you're 59 and a half years old. And so this is basically a deal the U.S. government has struck with regular citizens to say, hey, we don't want a bunch of broke old people dying on the streets of America and we also preferably don't want to be paying for them through Social Security. So while you're in your working years, we're going to give you a little carrot and an incentive to say, hey, you could save yourself a $700,000 tax bill if you do this thing where you're, you're saving the $240,000 yourself to grow into $3.1 million. If you do all that, then we won't tax you on the growth as an incentive to not be a broke old person and, and be like a burden to society and you know make our country sad and everything. And so that's, that's what a Roth IRA is. It's basically like this tax-free savings account um, that you can invest inside of that is a great deal for taxes. Can a high earner or rather a person with a higher income invest in Roth IRA? Is there a cap to that? That's a great question. Sounds like you know the answer. Um, so there is. That's one of the rules I forgot about, which is there is an income limit as well. And so I think for single people, it's in the low hundreds, like 130000 For married people, it's closer to 200000 um, but yeah, if you're over that, technically you can't contribute, but there is a such thing as a backdoor Roth IRA, which the IRS has confirmed to be legal, where you basically make it a two-step process instead of one where you open up a traditional IRA that does allow contributions at any income level and you make a, what's called a non-deductible contribution. And then two seconds later, you click the convert button on the website and then convert to a Roth IRA. And the net result is the exact same thing. It's now in your Roth IRA exactly as if you would contribute directly, but you've, you've like you know, follow the appropriate steps. You know, there's been talk that they're going to make the backdoor Roth IRA illegal. You know, like I said, it's just, it's annoying finance. It's annoying, like government legislation stuff. Um, but as of now, that's the state of the world. And so, yeah. And if you are a person who wants to contribute, you know, first of all, if you're making over those income limits, like congrats, you have a great option available to like we all do, which is opening up a regular old brokerage account. And like I said, if you turn 240000 into $2.4 million, even eating the whole tax bill, that's fine. Plus, there's some benefits of a regular brokerage account, which is like you can access the money whenever you want. There's no 59 and a half rule. Um, you can invest in whatever you want. You can put as much money in as you want. So, for example, if you're making $200,000 a year, 
and you're putting instead of 5,000 bucks a year and you're putting 50,000 bucks a year in, you know, you could be massively wealthy and get to millionaire status much, much quicker, um, which is great. And so, but yeah, back to our Roth IRA is, a, is an option. But also if you're making that kind of money, you're probably, you know, personally, uh, my net worth today is about $4.5 million. Um, and in my Roth IRA, I think is like $130,000. And in my brokerage account, you know, in my non-tax advantage accounts is like, you know, 4.2 you know, million or something, just because not, I couldn't fit as much. I would love to put more money in a Roth IRA if I could, but I can't. And so I just have most of my, my money in a regular brokerage account, which is great because it's just there and I can take it out and spend it on things like, I like, I just recently bought a Tesla in cash brand new and I took 60,000 bucks out of my brokerage account and wired it over to Tesla and now I have a fancy electric car. When you started learning about investing yourself, like what are some of the books that you read and that helped you? Yeah, you know, when I was 17, 18 and my dad helped me open that account, I didn't really know what the hell I was doing, like as most 17, 18 year olds don't know. But I I don't think I ever said this on this podcast yet, but some, when I was 34, I sold my company for $5 million and my share after taxes was about $2 million, which was very nice day. And so I went from living on $36,000 a year to being a multimillionaire in the blink of an eye. And um, I, in anticipation, I knew that like wire was coming where they, when the money like appeared in my account and I started reading every book I could find on personal finance and investing. And you know, I read like three of these books and, you know, suddenly it like all became clear. It's like, oh, all these say the same thing. It's like spend less than you make, invest the difference, buy index funds. It's like pretty simple despite pop culture not really having that message. But, um, you know, one of my favorites, like kind of basics of investing is it's called The Simple Path to Wealth by J.L. Collins, which just kind of basically hammers over and over the best practices of investing, which is, you know, very simple. Like don't jump in and out of the market. Don't try to pick a good time to invest. Just invest regularly like a robot invest in low cost index funds um you know keep it simple and and not not because it's like it's e not because it's easier even though it is i think people think investing should be like i should be like picking stocks and jumping in on the market and moving into gold and buying options and like making all these moves and like none of that's true you know all like the the older and longer the older i get the more experience i get the wiser hopefully i get um, and the more I see about investing, the more I'm convinced that the trickier you try to be, the, the less money you end up with. And the simpler you make it, the more money you end up with, which is very counterintuitive because, you know, for work, for example, uh, if you're starting a company, doing less is rarely better. You know, you want to do more, you want to work harder, you want to offer better products, you want to have more features, you want to, you know, and, and so I think we're kind of trained to work harder to think doing more is better. But with investing, it's just strangely opposite, like, you know, you want to know what you're doing, but then you want to keep it a very simple, and so the simple path to wealth, you know, that's kind of inspired by Jack Bogle, Jack Bogle's book, the, um, the little book of common sense investing, and Jack Bogle is the founder of Vanguard. Um, if you're someone who is struggling with spending all your money or you think you know rich people should be buying fancy cars and fancy houses i really like the millionaire next door which kind of um breaks apart some of the myths of wealth that it's not about you know thriving i mean despite saying how i just bought a tesla but 
up until, you know, I should say, I never bought a new car in my entire life until I was a millionaire. And then I bought a Mazda, which I drove for seven years. And then just a few months ago, now a net worth of, you know, four and a half million, I finally bought a Tesla, which is by far the most expensive car I've ever bought, but it's also the cheapest car relative to my net worth. Um, you know, when I bought that $3,000 Ford Explorer, that was like, you know, like half of my money, you know, that's like me buying a $2 million car now or something. Right. Um, and so relative to my net worth, it's, it's like, you know, I gain or lose that in the good or bad day of the stock market these days. Um, yeah. So those are three books I like. Yeah. Most of your investment portfolio comprises of, uh, index funds. Do you invest in cryptocurrencies or, or, or pick individual stocks apart from that? And what portion, if you do, what portion of your portfolio is that? You know, I would be very comfortable being in 100% index funds. The reality is though I'm not, I'm, I don't know, I'm, uh, you know, my general rule is 90, 10, 90% buy and hold index funds and 10% go nuts. And I don't personally believe in my ability to be able to choose cryptocurrencies or choose individual stocks that will beat index funds long-term, but you know, who knows, right? And sometimes you gotta, sometimes you gotta hint, sometimes you gotta like a, you gotta lead, you got a hot stock tip at, at Thanksgiving, or you, you heard a, a dude on, on uh, the street say, oh, this is the next hot crypto. And, and, you know, I still don't think that it's true. I don't think that's going to be better than next funds, but I think it's important to like set boundaries around your strategy. And, and I think part of that is releasing FOMO, your fear of missing out. And so, you know, I, I currently own, I think two individual stocks. Um, one is the company that bought my company. I sold my company to Appfolio. Um, and when I sold it, I bought a bunch of their individual stock and it, did well. And I, I've already sold most of it. I basically, the house that you see behind me, I bought with that stock, which was crazy. Um, and then I also bought Lyft stock because at some point I looked at Lyft and Uber and I was like, Hmm, at the airport, this was my, this was my reasoning. My, I was like, when I go to the airport, there's like a Lyft side and there's an Uber side and they're equal. But when I look at the market caps, like what they're worth, Uber is currently valued at like 10 or 20 times more than Lyft. And I was like, I kind of think Lyft does a good job. I think it's a good app. And and I think those two things are going to even out someday. And so I bought Lyft stock. You know, it's not the most complex analysis in history, but like it's not crazy either. Um, and since then, Lyft stock has dropped like 75%. So clearly I'm a brilliant stock picker, picker. But, you know, I haven't sold it yet. It's just, it's like fun money. It's like, it's a you know, tiny amount. And then in terms of crypto, you know, I don't, I think generally speaking, investing is about buying things that pay you while you own them. So just, just holding it means it's generating wealth for you. And so for example, if you buy, like I live in a house, if I go and buy the house next door to me and I rent it out to people, just owning that house is generating income for me from that rent. And houses generally go up in value. And those are the two things I look for in an investment. It pays you while you own it. And then it generally is likely to go up in value. And so cryptocurrency doesn't meet paying you while you own it. It's just like buying digital ones and zeros and hoping someone pays you more for it later. And then likely to go up in value, you know, you can make an argument for that for sure. You know, you could say it's a very speculative argument and the argument's something like, you know, at 
at most speculative, this is the future of currency and it's going to be worth more and everyone's going to be using it. So you better buy now. But at like less speculative, it's like, well, there's only so much crypto. There's only so much Bitcoin that can ever be created. So it's likely to at least keep up with inflation. And so, you know, you can make an argument that says it's going to go up in value, but it doesn't meet the first characteristic, which doesn't pay while you own it. And, you know, so I don't, I don't invest in other things. Like I invest in gold, which is going to keep up with inflation. I invest in oil. I invest in commodities. Um, you know, I basically invest in two things, index funds, which are stocks and, and real estate, which pays you, you know, investment in real estate, which pays you while you own it. And so, yeah, I like the crypto I own, I think is currently at like, it's like 2000 bucks worth of crypto into 4.5 million is like 0.001% or whatever. So it's like, you know, it's just for fun to see how it works. Do you buy like different types of index funds? The concept of index funds isn't about like picking good ones or buying a bunch of different ones. It's about just buying all the stocks. And there's a lot of different ways to buy all the stocks. They'll sell it to you in like 50 different packages. Um, But it's important to understand that you're not, you can't get tricky. And, And, you know, honestly, when I, when I, first and started investing my big money when I had that 2 million bucks, I bought seven different ETFs and I bought a large US stock ETF, a small ETF, a developed markets ETF, which is non-US companies, an emerging markets ETF, which is like, you know, uh, developing markets. Um, I bought a real estate ETF that's five. I think I bought commodities, which I regret and I stopped doing and bonds. We haven't really talked about bonds. So I think it was like seven like that. And I, and I, recently went and used this um, portfolio backtracking tool, which like looks at how that portfolio did. And I compared it to buying exactly one, which is a target date fund, which basically has all these ETFs inside of it. It's like, and again, it's all just different ways to slice up these 8,000 companies. And the target date fund, the one fund actually performed better than my seven carefully selected ETFs. Not a lot better, you know, Cause I'm just, you know, it, the seven ETFs was just trying to buy those 8,000 stocks in different little slices or whatever, but I just made it more complex than I needed to, and probably paid a little bit of higher fees. And, um, you know, they were very close lines, but the target date fund slightly outperformed. So it just like kind of, you know, strengthens my point. That's like the simpler you can make it, the better. Let's say an imaginary person, John Doe reaches out to you for financial help. Say John Doe is a recent graduate you know, has $50,000 in student loans, maybe $5,000 in credit card debt, and has a $70,000 job in New York City. What kind of advice would you give to John Doe to start his, start the journey towards his personal finance? So I personally don't like debt. I'm against the debt. And so if I was talking to John, I'd be like, I was like, yo, John, you can like live a carefree, financially successful, fruitful life for the remainder of your days and that is going to start the day that you get to get rid of that debt. You know, I think a lot of people just live their life in debt and just pay it off and whatever. But like, I just, I don't know. I just like the clarity of thought. It gives me why I'm not making payments. And so to John, I would say, yo, you got $5,000 in credit card debt, which is very, very high interest. I would say your one sole financial goal on earth until that's paid off is to knock out that $5,000 of debt. Don't worry about saving. Don't worry about investing. Don't worry about HSA. Don't worry about Roth IRAs. Don't worry about index funds. Don't worry about you. You worry about spending less money and dumping massive checks. And right. And if you're making seventy thousand bucks a year, obviously New York City is high cost of living. But maybe you can save five hundred, a thousand bucks a month that you're not spending, 
and knock out that credit card debt in less than a year. And then, all right, now we're one year in the future, never gonna go into credit card again for the rest of our life. Now we got the $50,000, now we got the big chunk. Okay, now if we can save, you know, let's, let's say we can save 8,000 bucks a year, that's, what is that, five years until you get, you get done with the, the um, credit, or until you get done with the student loans, but you're probably gonna get some raises in there in five years, right? You know, people don't generally work at a job for five years and not get raises. So when you get raises, maybe you get a raise for like two or 3,000 bucks a year, you can take that and just add that into that payment. And so then, you know, if, if, if he's recently graduated and he's starting to get raises and stuff like that, maybe like four or five years after graduation, he's now gone from 22 to 26, he can be a 26 or 27 year old. And also, by the way, if you're 40 and you're hearing this, you could be a 46 or 47 year old, you know, wherever you are, I still think the strategy is the same. And then have zero debt and have now a thousand bucks plus a month that you have been pouring into this debt that's now free and clear that you can use to your liking, which is to, you know, take most of that and start investing it to build wealth and then take the rest of it and just spend it to like ease up on your lifestyle a little bit. So that's what I do. Kill the debt and then start investing. Hmm. You also have a few courses on Personal Finance Club. What do you teach on those courses and like how are they different from all the content you have on YouTube or Instagram? They're not different. There's no secrets in the courses. Um, yeah, I I do this because I like doing it. Um, and I am, you know, I have two full-time employees now helping with the personal finance literacy. And we kind of, you know, it's kind of a struggle we have, which is because we're happy to do all this for free, or at least I am, because I don't need money. And they obviously want to get paid. Um, but we kind of struggle with like, how do we, you know, how do we make money if we're trying to educate people? And so where we're basically at is like, we give 99% of everything away for free. And then the 1% is these two courses, which is essentially just a organized walkthrough of everything we've talked about in this podcast and everything that's on the Instagram. And, you know, if you are someone who likes the content and wants to pay a few bucks for like the more thoughtful, organized walkthrough, because like, you know, as, as great as Instagram is, it's not like a great place to like, um, you know, have an organized A through Z walkthrough and we've got quizzes and videos and all that good stuff. And so it's basically the same stuff. And there's only two courses. One is investing, how to invest in index funds. And the other one we call how to money like a millionaire, which is basically all the setting up your financial life. So we talk about debt, um, budgeting, banking, credit cards, credit scores, net worth, um, even like estate planning and just kind of setting up your financial life the way I do to kind of just get in good terms and, yeah, they're 79 bucks each. So we try to keep them reasonably priced. And if you don't want to buy them, that's fine. Most people don't buy them, but enough people buy them that we can afford to pay three people's salaries, which is incredible and pretty exciting for me. Um, also, like for budgeting, is there a particular app that you use? I uh, personally use an app called YNAB. You need a budget. I used it for, I probably used it eight years now, way, way before I was ever a financial influencer. I actually started using it a few months before I sold my company. I think that was by design where I was like, because my whole life I had been just living on $3,000 and I was like, ooh, I'm about to have a lot more money. I think I should like, you know, strangely, I started using it when I made more money, not less. But I, when I was making 3000 bucks a month, I was just like, the budget is spend less than 3000 But then when I started making more money, I was like, I don't want my spending to just spin out of control with my income. Um, and so I started using YNAB for a few months. Yeah, YNAB, you need a budget. That's what I'm saying, Y-N-A-B. Um, and, you know, back then it was, um, it was like cheaper. Now I think it's like nine bucks a month or something, which like, you know, 
it's one of those things like it's definitely worth it if you use it um but also i wish it was cheaper but you know that's kind of life um yeah and so i still use it to this day and and it tracks every single account to my name and so if you like when i tell you my net worth is 4.5 million dollars because i can open up my YNAB account and just look at it and see all my accounts and then it also does a really good job other budgeting you know budgeting is kind of this whole thing but like for i i kind of hate that term because budgeting sounds like a diet where it's like, oh, you're going to just eat salads for a week and then hate your life and then binge on junk food because it didn't work. And budgeting is like, oh, you're going to say, you're going to make up a number that you're not going to spend over. And then when you do, you're going to feel shame and then just throw it away. But but YNAB isn't about that. It's more about taking all of your money and putting it into categories and then purposely, just 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 the awareness is what it's about. It's not about shame. Like if you overspend in a category, that's fine. But then you just have to decide what other category are you going to pull from, which is fine. So like, let's say you have like a food budget and a vacation budget and a rent budget. And then you go over on your food budget. That's fine. But then you're like, oh, I probably should pull from the rent budget or else I won't be able to pay rent. I'll have to pull from the vacation budget, which is fine. But then you're just, then you're just making informed choices. It's like, you know, you, you don't have you don't magically have more money. You just say, okay, hey, do I, then do I want to go, like right now I've got 50 bucks my food budget. Should I go out to dinner for a hundred bucks and then hurt my vacation budget? Or should I just like, you know, eat a sandwich home and, and keep my vacation budget intact? And either answer is fine, but now you're making informed choices. And so that's what I think in budgeting is really about. We read that you, you donate 20% of your revenue of the personal finance club to charity. And you also donated 2% of your previous company's revenue, not the profit, the revenues to charity, even though you had such razor thin margins. So we just wanted to get your thought behind giving and why is it so important to you? It, it gets kind of cerebral. It's like, why are we here on earth, you know? Um, and I think we're here on earth to to be happy and help people. There should be a like a moral obligation to help people directly and indirectly along the way. And so that's what I did with, with rent links. We gave 2% of our revenue. Um, and then with personal finance club, I was like, well, this is the kind of like a passion project for me. So let's just be crazy and give 20%. And we actually did recently change that a few months ago. We, so basically now that I have employees, um, you know, giving away 20% of your revenue is not a real recipe for profitability. And we actually lost money last year. And so we switched it to giving away 25% of profits um, which in the short term is going to be less because, um, you know, we take out expenses before we calculate profits. Um, but in the long term, hopefully it's more and it's more sustainable because hopefully profits will one day be bigger than even our revenues were today. Um, and so, yeah, we switched it to 25% of profits. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just, I just think it's the right, right thing to do. And, and I think the whole purpose of Personal Finance Club is like a charitable one. It's a, it's an engine for good. We try to help people learn how to build wealth and give people more directly who are in, who are in need. Um, and one day I'm going to die and all my money will go somewhere else and it'll be fine. And hopefully I can make some use of it while I'm here on earth too. You, how did you even start like posting content on Instagram or YouTube? Like where did you get that idea and like what made you want to even start this channel? So I um, sold my company and I was unemployed and i was dating a girl at the time who basically asked me like what do you want to be when you grow up 
you know, unemployed. I don't know. What you, I, or maybe I, I don't even know if I was unemployed. I might have been working. I don't know. But I basically like was not doing what I was like my career. And so after I, I quit my job, I did nothing for a year. Um, and my answer to her at the time was, I want to um, help people learn about personal finance, like host a podcast or a TV show or something like that, helping people with personal finance. And and we both were like, that's not crazy. I was like, yeah, that's not crazy. And so then there's one January I opened up. I was like, all right, how do you how do you start this from scratch? I had nothing. You know, I was I was a nobody. Um, I obviously like, had one small success selling a company, but other than that, like no one had ever heard of me or anything. And I was like an awkward computer programmer with, you know, with no social skills or anything like that. Um, but I was like, all right, Instagram, this was pre TikTok. This was 2019. This was four years ago, or maybe it was TikTok was in its infancy or something, but I don't know. Um, and so I was like, all right, where are most people? They're mostly on Instagram. So I'm going to start an Instagram account talking about personal finance. And I just, I, I was like, you know what, I'm going to set a goal of 50,000 followers a year from now. And I was like, that's a massive number. I don't know how anyone like it. Yeah. I was like, I was like, if you have 50,000 followers, you're like some sort of mega influencer. I had like no idea how you could get that big. I had no idea how to grow that big, but I was like, I was like, whatever, I got nothing else to do. I got no job. So, um, so I, just, I was like, all right, I'm going to post every single day for a year with the goal to get to 50,000. And then I did. Um, and for the, and well, I did post every single day. Uh, I did start posting every single day. And for like the first month it was, um, very slow going. And in fact, like I was a little bit disheartened because, you know, I had like friends, I had like a thousand friends on Facebook and I had like business associates. And I think that I was, and people knew I sold a company, which when I sold it was very exciting. And I was like a very popular person for a few weeks. And I was like, Ooh, that guy just sold his company, blah, blah, blah. And so then I, when I started my Instagram account, like a few weeks in, I kind of triumphantly announced, I was like, guess what, everyone? Great news. I'm starting something new. It's called personal finance club. We're teaching about personal finance on Instagram. Like, please follow me. I was like, I was like, everyone's going to like rush in and, you know, put me up on their shoulders. And then like, I think I picked up like 30 followers or something like that, you know, um, from like, from all of my like, you know, social, um, you know, connections. And so I was like, Ooh, well, and then I just started figuring it out. I tried, started making better content. I started asking people, like tried like paying really attention, close attention to the statistics about what, what performed well and what didn't. Um, I started like reading about, you know, how to grow followings, just like, you know, I was do, doing all the things that I was did with business. I was just like, just figuring out how to do it better and iterated. And then, you know, a year later, I think I had like 48,000 followers. And then I think it was like 54 weeks later or something, it got to 50,000. So it was, it was actually, I didn't quite hit my goal. I think I missed it by a couple of weeks, but, um, but still kind of, I don't know, maybe I should have picked a goal of like a million followers. And honestly, like, Maybe I would have been doing something different. Maybe I would have been like, okay, this is too slow. I'm like, at this pace, I'm, I'm, I'm only going to get to 50,000. I'm going to start doing like more outrageous stunts or something like that to get more attention. You know, like, like I do think there's something about goal setting where it's like you kind of like rise to your level of expectations, but, um, but still 50,000 wasn't bad the first year. Pretty amazing. So you did, you did all the content creation, all the, the thumbnails and everything by yourself? Yeah, I mean until I didn't hire someone for two years. And until then there was literally, there wasn't a virtual assistant there. I there wasn't a Fiverr. There was nothing. It was just like me at my laptop and my keyboard and my mouse. Um, you know, I was, I remember in college, I heard that like Photoshop is how you like edit images. 
And so I like, opened up Photoshop and like figured it out over time. And like to this day, it's like still by far what I'm best at. And so like all my Instagram and people always like, they always look at my Instagram like, oh, these look so good. How do you do it? They're like, what program do you use? And I, my answer is Photoshop because it's the truth. But the real answer is like, you shouldn't use Photoshop. It's not designed for this sort of thing. I just happen to, it just happens to be the tool that I understand well. And I'm like now a cross-jilled man who doesn't want to learn a better tool. Um, but yeah, the real, the real reason my Instagram looks good, I think is because it's consistent. Like all the posts are very similar to each other. It's got like nice colors that are consistent and it's got like nice fonts that are consistent. And I think just like the consistency and general design best practices is what, but there's no like, there's no app that does it automatically. It's like literally me making like pixel by pixel, pixel edits in Photoshop until it looks like I want. And now I actually have two employees and now we're kind of doing the, the, the um, content about 50-50, like they make half, I make half. There's one thing that I really wanted to talk and I think we missed, you know, I, I missed earlier that so Benjamin Hardy has this book called Who Not How that specifically talks that if you want to scale any business or, or scale and go 10x, the best thing is to hire somebody. You know, if you want to get a task done, it's better to hire somebody as opposed to learning that skill on our own. But the same thing doesn't apply as well to finances. It's difficult to, you know, um, like hiring a financial advisor to take care of, of, of our finances eventually becomes really expensive because of the expense ratio in a longer run. So can you can you talk to us about how even 1% of, of expense ratio can, can literally kill the capital gains into half? Yeah, it's kind of a similar analogy to what I was explaining earlier where if you're starting a business, kind of like the more you do, the harder you work, the better, including bringing on more people, bringing more employees. Um, but with investing, it's not true. You know, the less you do, the better. And, um, you know, I don't hate financial advisors. I certainly think many of them are in the industry for the exact same reason I am, because they like the concepts, they like helping people, they want to make a career out of it. Um, but the math behind the general financial advisor business model is rough. You know, generally financial advisors charge, you know, like you said, like around 1% of assets under management. And that's like a good one. The bad ones will charge you, you know, transactional fees and sell you crappy products that they earn commissions from and things like that. Um, but even at 1%, if you, you know, if you invested in that um, Roth IRA for 50 or 500 bucks a month for 40 years, and you got to $3.1 million, if you were getting 1% per year going to your financial advisor along the way, you wouldn't have $3.1 million. You'd have about like $2.4 million or $2.5 million. I just do the math, but you know, it'd be a massive, massive dip. And so, you know, a lot of people say to me like, oh, I don't want to figure out myself. My time's too valuable. I'll just hire a financial advisor. And generally that's like a good strategy for a lot of things for like cleaning your house or even doing your taxes or something like that. But just strangely, investing is one of those things that like financial advisors, in terms of managing your money, can't really do much that you can't do yourself if you just know the basics. Um, and so, you know, I, I basically am not a fan of that assets under management uh, business model because it can cost you like, you know, and, and, and that's only 1%. Some charge like 2%. And if it, at 2%, I do the, do the math. It's about half. So if you have a 2% fee, it's about half of your money. And so like, if you have $3.1 million, it goes to 1.6 million or whatever. That's rough. Like, do you, are you so busy? You're $1.6 million busy, like half of your money busy. You know, it's like, um, so 
of all the studies I've done looking at how to best maximize your investment returns, the only thing that is consistently comes back as true is minimizing your expenses, maximizing your own returns. And so, you know, like I said, I don't hate financial advisors, but especially if you're a young person, I would spend that few hours figuring out how to buy and hold index funds that are low cost on your own rather than just blindly going to a financial advisor. Because then you got the question of like, well, who's a good financial advisor? And when people ask me that, my answer is, I can't tell you who a good financial advisor is without telling you what they're doing. And once you know what they're doing, then you can do it yourself. Um, and if you don't know what they're doing, then you're, you're lost because you're just going to take whatever they give you and you might have a have a sleazy one. So you, you spoke about Roth IRA. There's this, there's a traditional IRA, 401k. So say if, you're, if your employer matches XYZ amount and you have the Roth IRA option as well, what would you suggest, you know, a young, maybe a 23-year-old fresh graduate to what steps to follow? Whenever I get like a more technical question like that, I always like to keep it simple and say, first things first, spend less than you make, invest the difference. And if you put, if you dump every penny into a regular brokerage account and get no tax benefit, you'll do great. You know, that's fine. There's benefits to that as well. Like it's very flexible and, you know, simple and all that stuff. That said, if you want to then like fine tune it a little bit and say, okay, let's minimize our tax as much as possible. Um, you know, I have... One of my most popular posts is called like the ultimate investing checklist, which is like a little tiny yellow post-it note, which kind of gives you like, you know, the post-it note size, what to-do list on how to invest. And, and you invest in this order first, your 401k up to your match. And so your 401k is another type of account, like a Roth IRA, we can put money in, but em many employers offer it. And many employers offer a match, which means if you put money in, they'll put more money in. If you don't do that, it's essentially flushing money down the toilet, right? If you don't take advantage of your employer match, it's like they were just willing to give you money in this account, which conveniently grows over time too. Um, and if you don't do it, so that's your first stop. Your second stop is actually technically the HSA, which we already talked about because it's got that triple tax benefit. Money goes in tax-free, money grows tax-free, money gets spent on qualified medical expenses tax-free, which is actually the best tax benefit of any of these accounts. The third stop is your Roth IRA, which you can put up to 6,500 bucks a month or 6,500 bucks a year into this year. They often increase that limit over the years. Um, and then your fourth stop is going back to the rest of your 401k. So like if you had like $10,000 to invest, maybe 2,000 is in your 401k up to your match, 3,600 or something's in your HSA, another 6,500 is in your Roth IRA. And if you still have more left under that 10,000, then you'd put more into your 401k, which is your original account. And so, you know, you basically figure out how many, it's kind of like a waterfall. How many of these buckets can you fill up before you're out of investment dollars? And then the last bucket is like the catch-all, which is the brokerage account, just your regular old brokerage account. And so if you're a high income earner and you're making 200,000 bucks, you're probably maxing out all these accounts. You're maxing out your 401k, 22,500. You're maxing out your backdoor Roth IRA, 6,500. You're maxing out your HSA, 3,650. These are all individual limits. If you're married, they're double. And then, um, and then you might have some extra to put into a brokerage account. And you know, then you basically, and as long as there's index funds inside of all those accounts, then you're optimally investing. As a fresh grad, you started your own company. You sold your company. And then you started creating contents. You know, it's, it's really valuable contents. And you started your own personal finance club selling courses. They're really, really, you know, good quality courses. Looks like whatever you do, 
you know has, has been successful so how much of it is hard work and how much is it luck i don't know it, you know there might be some survivorship bias there right like if i would had failed all this time then um you wouldn't be interviewing me or whatever and so like we look to the winners and ask them how they did it and they can give an answer but we're only asking the winners and and so there's just that survivorship bias it's like the the planes in world war ii where they would come back and they'd all be all shot up and then they were looking at them and they all had the sense they all, all they all did the same damage on them and then the designer's like well we should cover this place where they have damage and then someone else is like no cover where they don't have damage because those planes never came back so maybe it's the same thing so maybe like i have a blind spot that i don't see because um but yeah you know i i think that generally speaking success comes from persistence over time and um improvement along the way and i think that is reflected in in the businesses i've started in the social media and stuff where it's like you know on the first few months i think there's a statistic about podcasts since we're on a podcast that's like you know 90 percent of podcasts have three or fewer episodes or three or fewer episodes so if you have a podcast and you have four episodes you're in the top 10 percent and then like I think it's like 99% of podcasts have like 30 or fewer episodes. So if you have, if you have 31 episodes, you're in the 1%. And, you know, and think about like, think about where, you know, Joe Rogan is like a controversial figure. I'm not necessarily a fan of his or anything. Like I'm not necessarily not a fan. I'm not taking a stance on Joe Rogan, but like think about where he was after 30 episodes and the answer is exactly zero. Exactly, exactly nowhere. Like, you know, other, he was just like kind of like this comic. He was on fear factor he was just some random actor out there. As many random actors have podcasts, he was just some random actor with a podcast after 30. It probably took him like a thousand episodes before he actually got his stride and kept improving and figured it out. And, you know, and so, you know, is Joe Rogan like God's gift to podcasting? Probably not. He just didn't stop. You know, he was just persistent and kept getting better over time. Um, you know, was there luck in there? Yeah, of course, there's always luck involved. But like he put himself in a position to get lucky eventually. And I think that I did too. And so I think that's like the takeaway is, is you just have to be persistent, which sucks a lot of time, you know, like, you know, a month into me creating my Instagram, making 30 posts, a post every single day for a month. And, you know, even that, like, it's not that long, but how many people have made a post every single day for a month? Like a lot quit way before then. Right. Um, I had like 200 followers in the, even that that was begging all my friends to follow me. And so it was like, it would have been easy to just be like, okay, fuck this. Like I'm rich. I'm not gonna do this. Um, but, uh, you know, I just kept, uh, kept persisting and then eventually started to, you know, started to click. It's good advice. Consistency and persistency. Yeah. And, and improvement along the way. I'd say persistence and improvement. You know, if I just kept posting crappy pro content the whole time, it would probably have done, but I kept, I was like, all right, every single day, how can I make my post better, make it look better, make it connect with people better, make it, you know, whatever. Um, so those two things, I think if, if you're persistent and you improve consistently, um, I think that's, that's how you do it. True. I think that is poked by Carol Dweck called Grit. And it talks about something along the lines of intentional practice. A lot of people have one year of experience 10 times. That's how they have 10 years of experience. And others, they regularly keep improving themselves every single year. That's awesome. Yeah, I like that. No, I'm, I've probably been guilty of that on the wrong side of it a few times too. I think all of us have. Yeah. Yeah, it's, before we end this talk, 
Can you can you repeat those two rules that you live by? Yeah, the rules of personal finance club are rule number one, live below your means. And rule number two, invest early and often. If you do that, even if you don't get all the details perfect, you'll be in great shape. But if you spend all your money and don't invest, you'll stay broke. Jeremy, thank you so much. This is... Thanks. It was fun for me too. Thanks for asking the great thoughtful questions.